Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. My next guest is the CEO of Geelong Arts Centre, Joel McGuinness. Welcome to Triple R. Good morning. How are you going? Very well. Very well indeed. Now, people who uh, are familiar with your organisation might have just done a slight double take then because I called it Geelong Arts Centre. It was previously known as GPAC, Geelong Performing Arts Centre. Why the change of name? It's funny, we did a, a whole bunch of uh, research to people and said, you know, what does GPAC mean? And unless you're in the know... GPAC doesn't mean anything. If you if you know the organisation, you're in the arts, and you're from Geelong or even from Victoria, you probably you might know what GPAC means. But Geelong Arts Centre is it's just a it's a new time where we've we've opened this uh, fabulous new building in the last couple of weeks, which has a whole floor for the making of new work for creative industries. So that's really about just signalling signalling a change, uh, and that the arts are broader than performing arts for us. So we're talking to uh, illustrators and graphic designers and set designers and fashion designers that want to have a home in our new centre. And we just thought it was time to, time for change. Yeah. Now, uh, if we're talking about uh, the uh, the building itself and the, the changes, uh, all up a $38.5 million redevelopment, I believe. Yeah, it's it's uh, been huge. It's been a, a long time in the making and the planning. And since around 2007, they did the first master plan there about, you know, what is what is Geelong and what does the G21 region need for the future of, of arts and, and culture? Uh, and so it's actually the $38.5 million building is, is incredible. It was uh, f- funded through the state government. Uh, and, and as I said, there's a co-working space in there, but also making spaces for beautiful studios in there for making of new work. Uh, and it's around only about 25% of the whole redevelopment. So we've uh, we've opened stage uh, two, which we're calling it, which is the the, the one, the $38.5 million. We've then been able to secure a further $128 million from the state government as well to finish that project, which is then to d- uh, develop and build new theatres uh, to present the work down there. So we've, it's, a, it's a huge... Huge, huge time, uh, lots going on, but really exciting. And, and you know, that, that whole region is just growing so fast. Well, yeah, that's one of the things I understand, that something mm. like 7,000 people moved to Geelong from Melbourne in the last financial year. Yeah, it's crazy. So just, yeah, 7,000 people just from Melbourne moved to Geelong uh, last year. And then the, there's around 600 people a month moving to Geelong from everywhere around around the, around the world, around Australia. Uh, and it's just a really, it's a really great place to be. I'm, I only moved there 18 months ago from Western Australia. Uh, but it is, it's a really vibrant, really beautiful city. What's driving that growth? I think there's, there's a few things going on. So there's, uh, I mean, Geelong was, has been a manufacturing town for, a, you know, in, in its history for many, many years. But uh, over the last sort of five to ten years, there's been this uh, real drive from local government but also state government about what is the future of, of Geelong. And there's this vision which is a 50-year clever and creative vision. They, they asked 16,000 people in the region, said, what is it that makes us distinct? And people overwhelmingly said, it's, 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 it's a clever and creative future is what we want. So I think that's uh, that's part of the growth. It's also proximity to Melbourne. I mean, I've got friends that, you know, I, I as I said, I've just moved over who go, yeah, we, we can move to Geelong. It's, you can actually afford to buy a house. And it's an hour on a train. The trains go every 10, 10 minutes uh, to in, in peak hour to Melbourne. 
Melbourne. Uh, I, you know, trying to get trying to get to here from the other side of the city took me 45 minutes this morning. So an hour is actually, and then you've also got the beautiful coastline and a whole range of other cool things down there as well. So it makes sense then naturally then that with that growth and uh, and particularly with the the growth of population that the mm. population needs to be serviced appropriately yeah. and having a performing arts centre which is not just a home to touring productions mm. as quite a few of the individual art centres around the state are yeah. but as you say is home to makers of art as well through studio spaces and also then uh through the commissioning of local work. Yeah, and that's something that uh, is really important to me and to us as an organisation. Um, yeah, do you, you know, I think there's pl- plenty of amazing... I've worked in them, uh, regional theatres and theatres around Australia that are sort of receiving houses and you bring the best, you know, the best shows and the best seasons uh, from, from around the, the country or wherever, wherever you find the work. But I think one of the things for me that was really important in, in moving over here is that is to have an impact on that that local uh, arts and cultural you know I hate the word but ecology you know how do you support local artists that want to have a pathway to professional practice and that's something that we're really investing in now and just wanting to support that local arts community in a in a really genuine way. Now, in terms of the the, the spaces at uh, Geelong Art Centre, so let's talk. Uh, you've, mm. you've mentioned the fact that uh, I mean, we should acknowledge that Geelong is a UNESCO city of design. Mm-hmm. So, having the opportunity to have workspaces in there in which designers and illustrators and artists can operate out of is going to be important. But I understand there's something like four performance spaces now. Yeah, well, uh, for uh, the, the the building we just opened is for rehearsal studios, so beautiful studios. The biggest ones you can get 120 in for a performance. So, so that will be used as a kind of like like a black box studio space yeah. as opposed to the main stage. Absolutely, as a testing ground. So I think what we've missed down there, we've we've got a 1400 seat concert hall, 1800 seat playhouse theatre, we've got a 300 seat theatre as well, but we haven't had those. You know, where are those little spaces where you can test new work that you can bring an audience in and and try things out and and take some risks. So in the spaces now we've got four rehearsal studios. We can uh, stage what new work in there, and we are really uh, wanting to support uh, local artists to access that space. Uh, and you know, when I say local, I mean artists within Victoria. So you know, there's a big focus for us in Geelong and and regional artists. I think it's it's really crucial that we that we go there but also we've got lots of artists who around the place are saying oh can we come and hang out in Geelong and, and we're saying of course you can sure you can get involved um yeah it, it's funny was I um I I'm moving over here I was thinking well would people want to come down to Geelong from Melbourne for instance to, to make what wait make work rehearse work uh and we had uh, Gemma Pepper who's a is an independent producer a friend of mine came down and did some work with us and she said do you know what if you offered people a Mikey card and space that's an incredible offer and we're, we're going to do just that we're saying through come put it send us an idea expression of interest it's really easy through the website uh, and come and be in residence for a, a couple of weeks or a month to, to to create a new work so there's a real invitation there to the whole arts community to to get involved and, and come and check us out and also uh, an important opportunity then to strengthen uh, the 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 breadth and depth of 
uh, the arts practice in Geelong itself as well. So not just kind of visitors, but mm. I think a lot of people listening to this show would be very familiar with back-to-back theatre, who are yeah. Geelong's greatest cultural export. Mm. Uh, sorry, football fans, but it's true. Um, <laughs> but then you've also got uh, like the exam- uh, a local independent company down there, Doorstep Arts, for yeah. example. So giving them an opportunity to to have space in which to develop, create, gives them stability and security and the opportunity to dream more ambitious dreams. Yeah, and to try try new things out as well, you know. And I think that's that's a big big thing for us is that there's um there's a lot of amazing work that happens in Geelong and 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 the G21 region. But to say to companies like that, if you've got a, a, an idea, then you want a testing ground for it. When do you get that opportunity? You know, it, where's every, everywhere's so risk adverse, and uh, and a lot of companies, uh, you know, and 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 venues are, are you know understandably putting on work where they have to try and generate a certain amount of return. We're saying let's take some risks. Where is that safe place for a dan- you know for dangerous ideas to happen? Uh, and absolutely, we want to support those companies that are that are just really uh, emerging and and uh, need some support to take some f- fabulous ideas out into the world. My guest is Joel McGuinness. He's the CEO of Geelong Art Centre, which is located at 50 Little Mallop Street, Geelong, and you can jump online, geelongartcentre.org.au, for more details. Joel, you just recently launched your 2020 season. Uh, What are some of the highlights? Because, yes, as we've said, uh, it's an opportunity to program some of the the more intriguing and fascinating touring works that that move both around the state and around the country each year. Yeah, look, the the twenty twenty program is. I don't know. I think it's a beautiful. It's a beautiful program. We've got this. Uh, amazing subscriber base of people that have been with us for years and you know come on a journey and there's 14 shows in in, in this in the season for next year there's uh, a, there's a real um, mix and there's we're sort of uh, the idea of Brad rush who's our, our head 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 of programming and I've sort of we want to take people on a journey and let people take some risks so um, we've got we've got brand new day in there which is you know so there's that mix of sort of big step main stage shows and then some beautiful other works as well uh, man with an iron Necklace, I'm so glad that's been programmed because yeah. I've uh, I missed it when it was at Darwin Festival. I was there the week before. Yeah. I think then it was at Brisbane Festival, uh, and I was there the week after. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I've kept missing it around the country. So I'm going to have to jump on the train and head down to G Town. Come and check it out. Um, so yeah, brand new day, Animal Farm as well. Where's Jake and Stir? So those guys out at Brisbane do just do magic work and. You know, it's it's some one of those things in the program that they, their take on it is is really special. Um, as you said, doorstep art. So we're doing a, um, a we're we're also in the season this for the first time in a long time. We're actually partnering with some local companies in our main in our main stage work. So Metro Street is going to be on as well, which is a, is a musical with um, uh, and uh, Natalie O'Donnell is going to be in that. Who's a Geelong local now? Uh, we're doing uh, uh, 2D uh, as well, which is a uh, is Circus Oz, but we're also going to be. It's a, it's a bit again a big scale work in the Costa Hall, but uh, also with the Geelong Symphony Orchestra. So we're working with a local orchestra uh, and Circus Oz to to put that one on. And lots of beautiful. There's some beautiful works in. We're calling them special editions, but we've got Double Delicious, which is coming out of uh, Asia Topa Festival as well. Which is we've got um, five uh, Chinese Australians who who cook on and and tell their stories on stage. So we're going to actually be staging that on the Playhouse stage. We can only get a hundred p- 
her performance, but it's actually food and these stories of these people's lives. So. And, and food is a, a wonderful introduction and entry point to any kind of cultural experience. So the idea of having somebody like uh, Benjamin Law, who is such a raconteur anyway, uh, kind of cooking a family meal and telling a story at the same time, it's a, yeah. a great way to share insights into anybody's experience. Absolutely. And, and you know, and, and you know, the the stories of their lives coming through the flavors of their lives and you know everyone has that moment you know i'm sure i can think back of dishes that i've had that take me back to a place and so that's going to be really cool as well um we've got uh Isaiah coming down uh, jude pearl who's uh, you know jude, jude pearl the amazing cabaret performer she came down for the opening uh, our launch on monday night and just had the the audience just absolutely there with her and it was just you know it's those electrifying moments where people were listening to the lyrics of her songs which are really uh, incredible lyrics but just a beautiful cabaret performer as well for more information about the 2020 season at Geelong Arts Centre and for uh, opportunities for uh, artists and other creatives to get access to studio space and more, jump online, geelongartscentre.org.au. Really looking forward to seeing uh, it become the hub of uh, the next creative stage of Geelong. And uh, you mentioned that there is also that next stage development of the building. Mm. Uh, you've already secured the funding for that. When does building actually start? Yeah, so uh, stage three is a $128 million building. We're going to be actually um, uh, knocking down or building a five. We're going to build a 500-seat theatre, a 300-seat theatre as part of that. A lot of the existing building will go. So late in 2020, we'll be moving out of the existing building, moving into the stage two we've just finished, uh, and we will be programming all sorts of weird and wonderful things around the place so that we can actually knock that building down uh, and start again. Uh, and, you know, this is, it's some incredible history that's happened there over 38 years, but we're really looking forward to taking that to the next step. And so we'll be we'll be building site again for another couple of years uh, from the end of next year. We'll have almost 12 months off building and then we'll start it all over again. And it's it's really exciting for Geelong and for the, for the whole region. I'm looking forward to seeing it grow, even though I can no longer use the acronym GPAC, which rolled off the tongue so easily. But Geelong Art Centre uh, uh, continuing to develop and grow as it becomes uh, an even more important creative hub for the arts community in Geelong. I've been chatting with Joel McGuinness, the CEO of Geelong Arts Centre. Joel, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Louise Weaver is a Mansfield-born visual artist who currently has a major exhibition showing across four gallery spaces at Buxton Contemporary. The exhibition is called Between Appearances, the art of Louise Weaver. Louise, welcome to Triple R. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well, very well indeed. It helps if I had the right microphone on for you, though. That's better. (laughs) There you are. Now... How does it feel to be the subject of such kind of a, a major exhibition? Daunting because you have to look back at your body of work or flattering? 
Oh, both those things in waves of, at different times through the process of um, preparing for an exhibition like this one. It's um, been six months in the making, which isn't a very lead, long lead-up time at all for a major exhibition of this kind. And fortunately, I've um, had the support of Buxton Contemporary and the wonderful staff there, and I've been working very closely with the curator, Melissa Keyes, to develop both um, a mono monographic exhibition and also um, through the support of the Australia Council to being able to make a, a whole new body of work as well. Which so that it means then it's not just a retrospective; it's bringing it up to the present day and beyond. Yes, hopefully yeah. it's proposing lots of new ideas and lots of new ways of working for me personally into the future. And very fortunately, I've been able to, and luckily for me, been able to work with some other wonderful artists that I've commissioned to work alongside me for this project as well. Luke Whitten, who's a wonderful sound sound designer, uh, Michaela Pegum, who's a wonderful choreographer and dancer, amongst many other wonderful attributes. Um, she's also a wonderful golden silversmith as well. And Dave Ma, who's made a film of Michaela performing within the space, activating the space along uh, to uh, Luke's wonderful sound design. So it's been a wonderful gift, I think, both for the audience to um, witness um, their collaboration with me, but also for me personally as well to have that opportunity. Now, if people go and visit the exhibition, they'll see, amongst other things, some of the reoccurring themes and references in your work, and that includes kind of uh, sculptural shapes representing animals, uh, but also referring to plants and rocks and minerals. Um, <laughs> and also one of the other things that uh, some, I guess, beyond the, the actual object themselves, they might see kind of an exploration of some of the themes which fascinate you. So transformation, concealment, metamorphosis um, and colour and I want to talk about colour because colour clearly interests you as an artist in a number of ways and in particular mm -hmm. the way colour is used in nature but then the way also you as an artist can use colour that is very very divergent from nature and kind of almost challenges the natural form the natural representation by changing the colour of an object. Yes, certainly. That's very perceptive of you. Thank you. <laughs> I think colour um, can uh, suggest heightened sensibilities. It can be used um, as an optical device to, um, for instance, there's a work called Taking a Chance on Love from 2003, which is an entirely red carpet installation, which was also one of the first, or was the first work that the Buxton Collection acquired of my, of my practice. And it's a, a red carpet with entirely red objects situated over the surface, um, which creates almost like a um, an island suggesting an alternate uh, evolutionary course for perhaps some um, animals and other natural forms. And so when you stare at the red for an extended period of time, which I hope the work encourages you to do through its tactile, tactile qualities and textures um, and beautiful uh, kind of evocative surface qualities, you look away and the after image is green. So, in fact, it's a greening of the environment rather than um, kind of a devastating aftermath of violence, which some people think it is. It could also be read in terms of um, romantic love and, and passion. So I think it's also um, colour can be read from the perspective for the viewer of their own interpretation of things. I love the fact that you're conscious of the after image as well, and that's mm. a, clearly a, a deliberate uh, evocation, the fact yes. that, as you say, yeah. 
uh, on an emotional level, red is the colour of passion. Mm. Green is is envy and jealousy. So mm. we could be then looking at the spectrum of a relationship from, from <laughs> passion through to bitterness at the end of it as somebody takes on a new lover. Um, and this consideration of form, uh, looking at some of the images of the installation mm. of the work, there's one work, for example, that uh, it, at first glance it looks like a tree trunk complete mm. with branches spreading out across the floor, but then we, we look closer and it appears to be woven. And mm. so then is it actually suggesting, kind of, are they umbilical cords? Are they <laughs> veins as well as being the roots of the tree or woven forms. Well, they're very evocative kind of um, ideas that you're talking about. I think um, the work's called Capsize and it's made entirely of hand-knotted um, and um, crocheted warp thread from carpets. So it has another association too about falling, the sensation of falling, whether it's from the side of a ship into the water or just how you feel sometimes being drawn down into the sea through the currents and the waves. Um, so really it was a, just a sense of th- this is a concept, I want to explore it in terms of um, how that might equate to a tactile or physical representation of form through making and um, very time involved and very physically um, active requirements of making to achieve the outcome which is this it seems like a tree but it could be a column <laughs> it has um, kind of ancient archaeological and um, classical references of um, of columns Greek or Roman columns perhaps as well and columns as a as a term in terms of architecture and also um, you know things like Brancusi's endless column which I've also referenced um, things that are very much um, uh, repurposed and re Re, um, kind of contextualised through the use of tax, uh, textiles and materials, which are often associated with gender-related activities or f- feminine activities. Now, why does the sculptural form fascinate you? Because you've been exploring uh, mm. kind of hard sculptural forms, branches mm. and animals and so on, since mm. the the early to early mid-90s, 90s, yeah. Yeah. even before you graduated mm. from RMIT. That's correct. Um, I think a lot of it is to do with what materials I had available, things that were perhaps um, easy to uh, access. The tree branches, for instance, I carried home after um, they'd been locked off in the streets by um, different um, telco companies to stop them from rubbing up against the telephone and um, power lines, so they were free. (laughs) Um, And also I loved the idea of the kind of materials that were kind of very low-fi in terms of um, both their cost and also um, in terms of their implications. Often the materials that I've used are very um, modest and very uh, and often very cheap to buy, but it's the time that I've involved in making the work, which is the luxurious element, the thing that is, um, you know, a gift for me, but also hopefully for the viewer as well. Now, with some of those early works, uh, one of the things that you did and which... Uh, has continued on uh, elsewhere in your practice. You would crochet skin for these objects. So yes. you would transform a branch into a piece of coral, for mm. example, by giving it a, a kind of uh, crocheted skin. Mm. You've also then uh, crocheted skins for animal forms kind of later in the early noughties as well. So this notion of 
uh, creating, uh, of layering work through a physical intervention, a handmade intervention, mm. is clearly a, a, an ongoing thread of your practice. But why? Why? <laughs> Often artists strip away work yes. rather than add to. For mm. you, it's the adding to that is part of that creative process. I'm fascinated to know what drives that. I think um, the idea of the skin, it's a semi-permeable membrane, as skins are. It allows for an exchange of gases or fluids, potentially and metaphorically. Um, the skin can be something that is protective but it also binds so it's keeping something contained and I like the idea with the use of crochet over different um, abstract or or recognisable forms such as animal um, models that are taxidermist models made of foam um, that it's actually protecting the once living animal and transforming it into something metaphorically to have another life. So it's a very optimistic and positive um, contribution I'm making to the form, I hope. Um, and also just the beautiful tactile qualities and the textures, the intensity of the colour and the pigment that occurs through that kind of close, intimate um, kind of knotting of thread. Um, and also just... Um, the crochet, I think, the first work I made was called I was trans I'm transforming an antler into a piece of coral by crocheting over its entire surface. So I like that the crochet was also like a stand-in for that act of transformation. The the knotting became almost like a organism the, the, that the coral is and growing out and metatastasizing and kind of altering its form in order to survive. The artist Louise Weaver is my guest. We're talking about the exhibition Between Appearances, the art of Louise Weaver, currently showing at Buxton Contemporary, which if you've not been there before, on the corner of South Bank Boulevard and Dodd Street South Bank, just around the corner from the NGV and pretty much over the road uh, from the MTC's South Bank Theatre. Now, as we said, uh, there are newer works in the exhibition as well. Mm. Uh, and you've moved away from sculpture to create large-scale paintings. Talk to us about this kind of new... Is this a new phase of your practice? I or? actually studied painting at art school. I've made paintings throughout my career, but I think people most know me for my sculptural objects and works so as installations. Be, it must be then enjoyable to be able to say... this. This is more of me. There is more yes. to me than you think and you know. <laughs> yes, certainly it is. And I think it's surprising for many of the viewers and visitors to the gallery who have seen the kind of breadth of my artistic practice. Um, there's no hierarchy. There's no one thing that's more important to me than the other. The current trend for me in, in the studio is to explore the use of paint as material, as matter, to create skins of a different kind, so still evolving from the perspective of making through use of textiles and materials but the work that is currently in the in the upstairs first floor gallery is made sp specifically for the site it was once a dance and performance rehearsal space when it was part of um VCA proper and um and now it's um this transformative space of uh, highly polished concrete floors that are almost like um, mirrored surfaces of sand with the water retreating back into the sea. And that was kind of the first thing I noticed about the space and how beautiful and evocative that could be. And so many of the things that I've made for that space are relating to concepts of water, different states that water can exist in from frozen to gaseous, 
and liquid, of course. Um, so very specifically responding to the space. Yes, and very to, certainly. For the work that you've created for yeah. it. Yes. If the building were a person, I imagine it would be quite flattered. <laughs> oh, well, I've been very flattered to have the wonderful opportunity and it's been, you know, fabulous to use the space in a, in a way that I would not have imagined as well. It's kind of grown through the process of working and making. Um, so I'd see the potential for certain things and extend upon them. There's a great big six-metre-long painting by three and a half metre that spans the space, the hemispheres between two of the load-bearing pillars in the gallery. And it's both um, an object, a sculpture, a piece of furniture and a painting in a formal sense, a backdrop to people coming and visiting the space and they can be engulfed and immersed into it um, as an environment. It enforces or reinforces, I, I guess, the um, the value of getting out of the studio, getting out of your traditional working space. And it's the same for anybody, artist or no, kind of mm-hmm. a change of scenery kind of changes the way uh, you look at the world, changes your perspective. But for an artist who is responding to their environment or kind of uh, it must be so important for you to regularly escape the studio space, to, to change how you see what you see, what you're surrounded by in order to cha- change your work. I think it's the same for everyone to be engaged in the world fully and totally in as many different ways that you can be. Um, You know, we're so lucky living in Melbourne, having so many beautiful natural environments that are free to visit and to kind of um, engage with. And and the gallery for me is almost like a a vital living kind of breathing organism that I'm kind of habiting (laughs) at a certain stage for the next few months at least. And um, yeah, so it is incredibly important and um, it's wonderful to have these opportunities, which don't often happen in an artist's lifetime so I've, I feel particularly you know fortunate and very privileged and honoured to have this opportunity. Between Appearances The Art of Louise Weaver is on now showing until the 9th of February 2020 at Buxton Contemporary located at the corner of South Bank Boulevard and Dodd Street South Bank buxtoncontemporary.com for more details. Now uh, Louise, are you doing floor talks? or? I will be. They're yet to be determined, but there will be a public program that will be announced in the next few weeks. And uh, if you want to get along to the gallery, admission is free. It's open Wednesdays to Sundays from 11am till 5pm. Uh, and keep an eye on the website, buxtoncontemporary.com, uh, to yeah, find out more about those floor talks. In terms of the opportunity to speak directly to the public, what does what value does that have for you as an artist? Because sometimes I'm sure you just want the work to speak to it for itself. Yes, certainly. <laughs> I'm very fortunate that I also teach at university at RMIT University two days a week, and so I, that's one of the things I love to do most is actually engage and talk about things, not necessarily my own artwork, but certainly other people's artwork, and to help them as well. And I really enjoy the opportunity to speak to people in the general public as well. So please feel very welcome to come and and speak to me at the public programs that will be running. So, as I said, check out buxtoncontemporary.com for details about those public programs as they're announced. Buxton Contemporary, located on the corner of South Bank Boulevard and Dodd Street, uh, open Wednesdays to Sundays, 11am to 5pm. The exhibition, Between Appearances, The Art of Louise Weaver, is free. Louise, thanks so much for joining us here at Triple R. My pleasure. Thank you very much. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how.
last Friday night, I went along to the MTC's South Bank Theatre for the opening night of Kiss of the Spider Woman, a musical by John Kander and Fred Ebb, who are probably best known for works like Chicago and Cabaret. Uh, this is another musical which taps into some of the the darkness uh, that runs like a thread through Chicago and Cabaret as well. It's based on uh, a novel which has also been turned into a stage play and a film. And it's possibly a slightly unusual uh, musical when you consider that it's set in a prison in an oppressive regime where people are being tortured and brutalised and killed. So not your usual traditional happy <laughs> musical. I'm joined by uh, cast member Natalie Gamzu and also by uh, Luca Donato, who is the assistant director and assistant choreographer. Welcome to you both. Hello. Thank you very much. Hello. So, Natalie, let's start with you. As you were laughing, as I said, it's not your <laughs> traditional musical. When you first heard about this, because it's been... Uh, around for quite a few years, yeah. but when you were approached about this production, what were your thoughts about its, I guess, its it working as a musical? Because often people expect musicals to be frothy, to be happy. They don't have to be right. by any means, but that's the preconception. So having a, a musical, as I said, in which torture and murder mm. are part of the show and, and a desperate need to escape reality into fantasy in order to block mm. out the horrors of the world... It's a really, it is an unusual subject for a musical. Do you think people will be, uh, might be put off because it's not what they expect? I think um, that it, it is quite shocking for some audience members who've never heard of Kiss of the Spider Woman. You know, I, I, it was a film that changed my life in the 80s. And um, I come from South Africa, which is a very, was a very oppressive regime. So it was a, a film that completely made sense to us and we we clung to it and then when I lived in New York I saw the musical and it was so lavish that I didn't quite get the brutality of it so when we had the opportunity to do it what I was looking forward to was realizing what a strong book it was and that it was actually a theater piece with music and because it's a much um, whittled down cast and set compared to the Broadway production I think it's even starker and I am so happy to be in a musical that is about something real and I think that people who love theater really get it because it is a theater piece um, with brilliantly written characters and um, but it's confronting there's no question that it's confronting it's not Mary Poppins, we keep getting told. <laughs> it's certainly... Well, unless it's Mary Poppins on acid having a very bad trip. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, um, for you, Luca, this is your first time working on an MTC production. For, yes. pe for people who don't know the world of theatre and how it works, what exactly does uh, an assistant director slash assistant choreographer do? Because... There is a director, Dean mm -hmm. Bryant. There is a choreographer. So is it your job to trail them around? Or? Um, well, I have never assisted two people at the one time, so that was new for me. And um, basically you're there to, well, assist when they need, but it, de it depends on who you're assisting. Some people need um, organisation, need you to remember what they've said or have choreographed. Um, sometimes they need to help assist creating what their vision. Um, it just depends on the day, depends on the person. Um, but with this job, uh, it was pretty much Dean and Andrew Hallsworth, who was the choreographer, um, 
are very great at working together. So that was actually a benefit for me so that I could still work with both of them. Um, but they they are very creative humans. So creating this job and this show wasn't actually what I needed to assist it on, them on. It was more about um, helping them continue the vision once they had created like the base of what they wanted. And then it was my job with them to help uh, fix the problems or, um, you know, benefit the story more. It's like, oh, you know what, actually this doesn't work because the story's not being told the best way. Yeah. yeah. Now, in terms of the story, uh, as I said, uh, Kiss of the Spider Woman takes place in a in a South American prison in a somewhat kind of generic uh, mm-hmm. South yes. South uh, American regime, uh, in which we have Valentin, the committed, passionate. Uh, kind of revolutionary, yes. uh, and his cellmate uh, Molina, uh, a, a very, very overtly gay, flamboyant window dresser, uh, who escapes into a fantasy world in order to essentially stay sane mm-hmm. uh, under a, a very brutal system. Initially, there is enormous tension between them, and slowly they, uh, as is kind of traditional under the circumstances, people begin to find uh, a point of connection. Bet- uh, a point. Uh, their differences become uh, something that brings them together. Mm-hmm. The other plot element, uh, while they're... Their friendship is part of the the story. The the tension then arises when uh, Molina is asked to betray Valentin uh, by the commandant, uh, uh, and thus we get both two stories unfolding kind of simultaneously. The third story being their yearning for the outside world and the people they've left behind, and a beautiful uh, kind of. Uh, Kind of seen in the the work in the the production is when uh, the two men in the cell are singing about the women they have left outside a girlfriend a mother mm. uh, and then those characters enter and begin to sing as well it's I, I was wiping away tears at that point oh, oh good I'm so pleased to hear that <laughs> I think there's a lot of tenderness um, with the characters of Marta and the mother which is so needed in the piece um, and I think it's a beautifully written quartet. Um, but I think that, te- that that tenderness is everything given the brutal world. Now, talk to us about uh, something that I wanted to, to tease out a, bit, a little bit from what Lucas said. In terms of um, uh, Dean Bryant, the director, his yes. vision for the work. When he first spoke to you, how clear a vision did he have of the work? How has it evolved since then? Dean is super smart and erudite and, you know, day one, we we did music initially, but then we did a read through and he spoke, the set was already designed by Alicia Clemens beautifully, it was Mm -hmm. up on the wall. Dean had worked, you know, for months and months and months and was really clear about Mm -hmm. how he wanted this to proceed, how he had envisaged it. Um, And so I, I think given the short rehearsal time, the massive project that this is it was essential um Andy is much more fluid in the way that Andy works with incredible inspiration and in the moment and I mean to watch him create is just it's an extraordinary experience (laughs) um and the way they work together but Dean definitely was very clear with what he wanted and he and Alicia had had designed the set with that vision yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, Luca, in terms of uh, the, let's talk about the choreography because, yeah. as I've said again, a prison is not necessarily the kind of place <laughs> where you expect uh, 
suddenly Dancing. song and dance numbers. <laughs> and it's one of those, I, it's a production I don't want to give too much away about mm-hmm. because there are certain uh, sequences that. Uh, Kind of that that startle and delight, and one of them is a big Broadway style kind of <laughs> dance number in in which uh, helmets and battens are transformed. I, I won't say any yes, more than that. Beautiful. Uh, but talk to us uh, about how, given that uh, what Natalie just said, there's a relatively ho- short rehearsal time. I'm imagining about four or four five weeks, four yeah, weeks. Right. And normally for a, a big Broadway musical, you have. Uh, um, a month, two months or more of mm-hmm. rehearsal and development. How long does it take the cast to master the, the choreography that's being created? Um, well... <laughs> yeah, I say it depends which cast members. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it was... It was um, Andy had an idea of what he wanted the choreography to... Uh, to look like insofar as he knew that a lot of the time the prisoners were the people that were going to be performing so having the um the pain of a prisoner and the life of a prisoner definitely uh influenced the shapes that he created so naturally as the rehearsal process went the more the the cast could um click into being a prisoner actually the easier the steps were to portray um it didn't take Oh, it didn't take long, um, only because there's a few dance numbers, so it was kind of like you had to keep moving. Um, but yeah, it was. Um, it took the whole rehearsal period, really. Yeah. Even through tech, it was still we were still um, mastering the steps mm-hmm. and the style completely. But may I say, Andy is very good at choreographing for actors. Yes. So there's always a story to the choreography. You're mm-hmm. not just dancing. You're telling a story with your body. So for some of us who are non-dancers, it becomes possible because you're telling a story. Yeah. Yes. Now, you've had experience of choreography and dance in other productions. Yes. Uh, Strictly Ballroom, yes. for example. So you're clearly used to working with choreographers yes. while also performing. But does it sometimes feel like you're trying to master a foreign language? Totally. Totally. <laughs> I mean, and especially when you look at the dancers, because a lot of the ensemble in this show and certainly in Strictly are dancers. So, you know, their neural pathways are very different to mine. It's a language and they learn it quickly. They get it. They can do it. And for actors who can move but are not dancers, it is torturous, torturous. Yeah, no, it's it's full on. But may I say something, Richard? You know, the, the one thing, even all, because I don't want people to think that it's just all dark. I think that what is the power of the story is that it really is the hero's journey, is that when you can create humor through darkness, it becomes the hero's journey that most oppressed people have done in their lives. And I think that's the strength of the show. It's certainly that notion of being able to carve out uh, your own world defiantly, yes. for mm-hmm. example, uh, and being uh, being true to yourself and, and seeing that journey develop uh, is a beautiful part of, of the work. Seeing um, a friendship uh, deepen and develop is a beautiful part of the work as well. And yes, there is brutality and yes. darkness, but the, the after interval, the opening act number is a <laughs> beautiful piece of comedy. Tatiana! It's so sharply done. And Caroline O'Connor, uh, oh. who plays um, the character of Aurora slash the Spider-Woman, yes. Aurora being the the, uh, the the 
kind of golden age of Hollywood style uh, actress mm-hmm. who is um, uh, kind of adored and worshipped. Um, uh, kind of her physical comedy, uh, her kind of just her gestural comedy oh, in that uh, o- opening number is brilliant. It yeah. really is. Yes. Yeah. 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 No, she can inhabit in her body, like when you talk about dancers, you know, she, the story she can tell with her body from years and years and mm. years, it is phenomenal to watch. And and her her Russian woman is amazing, Tatiana. They Dean and Andy did not have to give her much direction uh, for that scene. She mm. she definitely knew how to um, to do that in her body. Mm. She it, that's very her, very her. Mm. Yeah. yeah. The production that we're talking about is Melbourne Theatre Company's Kiss of the Spider Woman, and I'm very glad that the MTC have staged this because otherwise I suspect we would not see a, a production of it in Australia. It's Absolutely. not the kind of musical theatre work that uh, the big producers like John Frost no. or so on would probably do because <laughs> because it's not a traditional musical no. in many ways. It's, it's commercially um, risky. Yeah. It's you complete know. risk. And so... Yeah. Thank goodness we have something like the MTC, in the, you know, in Melbourne, of course. Uh, but, you know, that they take the risk and it's a big risk. Um, but it's theatre and I think that's what's so exciting. It's theatre with music and it's essential that we see it. Mm. Now, uh, I have to ask, uh, Natalie, given yes. that you're uh, playing one of the, the, the key role of the mother kind of, uh, and given that you are the representative of the cast here, do you read reviews? Sometimes, mostly not until afterwards, because they they do play with my mind regardless whether it's something nice or not nice. It's a bit like getting on the scale, you know. It's dreadful whether you've lost or put on weight. Um, <laughs> it does a similar thing to you, you know, whether you're mentioned or not, Whether because we all have bloody huge egos. Um, so I try not to, and then afterwards sometimes I will read it, but people invariably will tell you. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I can... I know, having interviewed so many performers over the years, the fact that uh, once you start to read a review, you start to second guess yourself. You yes. start to kind of think, oh, but that reviewer said X. Maybe yes. I should underplay or overplay or whatever. Kind of, Luca, similarly for you and the creatives on the show, because yeah. I know that at the MTC, the reviews will be pinned up on a board somewhere. And so people can look at them if mm. they want to. Uh, do you read them? And, and um, I, well, I am a performer myself. Um, I'm obviously not performing in this show, but um, I it, it's the same as as, mm. as Nat. It's um, it's a hard decision to make, um, and I think given that this show is already a risk, and we already knew when we were stepping f- into this process that it was going to be a challenging piece of theatre. Um, so it, it's I haven't read a review yet uh, for the same reason as mm. Nat. Um, but I'm sure I probably will once we finish, mm. just to see, really. Just to see what people have yeah. to say. Well, I've read uh, as many of the reviews as I could get my hand on. I won't quote <laughs> them and I won't tell you what people have been saying. Um, but having seen it on opening night, it did reinforce to me why I sometimes avoid opening nights. Yes. I always prefer to see a show later in its run once it's settled, settled. in, mm. and particularly a production like this where um, you've only had four weeks rehearsal, kind of first Part one, a little bit wobbly. I yeah. thought after interval, bang, it came yeah. together. I was kind of, I was wiping away tears. Mm. I was laughing. Mm. Uh, and the that central relationship um, uh, kind of 
between uh, uh, Valentin and Molina. and Molina became so compelling. Mm. Uh, kind of, uh, yeah. So I'm, as I said, I'm very, very glad I had the chance to see the production. Um, we should uh, acknowledge some of the other cast members as yes. well. Oh, yes, please, let's do that. Um, Ryan Gonzalez, who I worked with in Strictly, who plays Gabriel, Lyndon Watts, Jacob Ambrose, uh, Bert Labonte, who plays the, he's a stalwart of MTC and plays the um, warden and is quite chilling. Um, who else? Blake Applequist, who's this tall, gorgeous warden. Um, I mean, not war- yeah, uh, God. God. And um, Joe Gaudian. And then, oh, Elandra, Elandra, <laughs> who is just beautiful. I don't know how to say her last name. Ermla? Uh, sorry, I don't know. Um, she is, plays Marta and is just the most beautiful dancer and singer. And, and you have the leads. And then, yes, the, the, the three leads. I think that's everyone that I've mentioned. Yeah. So, uh, and we've already acknowledged Dean Bryant, the director, and yes. Andrew Hallsworth, the choreographer. And of course, Jack Earl. Who's mm. the m- musical director Earl. and orchestrator. Genius. Yeah. And uh, Alicia Clement, set and yes. costume designs, which are glorious. Matt Scott's lighting design. It, Beautiful it, lighting all, and sound. Uh, yes. Amazing yeah. creative yeah. team. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Kiss of the Spider Woman, presented by Melbourne Theatre Company, on until the 28th of December. In the Sumner at the South Bank Theatre, 140 South Bank Boulevard. If you've not been to the South Bank Theatre before, just around the corner from the NGV. You can book tickets through www.mtc.com.au or by picking up the phone and calling 86880800. That's mtc.com.au or 86880800 for Kiss of the Spider Woman on until the 28th of December. I've been talking with uh, Natalie Gamzu and Luca Donato. Thank you both so much for joining us here at Triple R. Thank you, Richard. It's been great. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 